Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scotch Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and shoot the breeze. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a This week we're joined by social historian, podcaster and author of the books Black Boots and Football Pinks, Scribbles in the Margin and Saturday 3pm, it's Daniel Gray. I think, I think Daniel, you've been the guest that we've chased down the hardest so far. Uh, numerous DMs, emails. <laughs> uh... <laughs> I know. I'd like to. I'd like to pretend it's because I've just got such an exciting life and so many work offers, but unfortunately, it's usually been childcare, hasn't it? That's put paid to me. <laughs> I'd just like to say welcome. I'm not even going to caveat. Thank you. Then. Thanks for having me. Welcome. But you're, you're here now, so thanks for coming. Thanks for coming on. So we're here to discuss uh, Shoot Magazine from uh, the 20th of February 1982. On the cover, we've got. Andy Gray and Dave Watson uh, in action in a Scotland and England match. And I think I've worked out that this would have been the game of the 24th of May 1980 at Hamden. Uh, England won 2-0. Now, Andy Gray came on as a sub in the 52nd minute. I agree with Wills at the time, Watson with Southampton. And I think, Andy, if you look through the Scots Footy Cards collection, there's, there's several photographs for this match through uh, Andy Gray and, and Dave Watson. Yeah. Yeah, I think you find you find that throughout the years that some you know some cameramen, um, the photographers get their money's worth out of the usage of their stuff. And the point that you just made about when this game was, so it was like two years previous, and they're using a two-year-old photograph as a front cover to the magazine is just incredible. That you know it wouldn't be acceptable these days. Well, if it was a nostalgic thing, I guess looking back, but as a sort of by the way, this is this is up to date. But here's a two-year-old photograph of Andy Gray in the front. I don't think it would quite fly. That England kit, I love. Uh, perhaps not the the V-neck goes a bit far, but the stripes on the top. I've always admired that kit, and I, ha I have the previous one to it because my uncle uh, gave me it. Just and it's in that awful seventies material that really itches you just itch. I can't believe anyone wore it never mind footballers I used to put it on as a kid I've got those those the socks are the same actually I've still got them and I used to wear the socks right until playing five sides at university but the the material of of those shirts so that's that 1981 looks like it's a bit more modern material I think yeah I don't know I don't know if you I've mentioned this before about um when I had my my first Clyde bank top and it was made a you know, so it would have been the late seventies, sort of into the early eighties, and it was made of this polyester type thing that, if you're running about in it all day, it's night time. You go into your room, shut the curtains, so when you take it off, you see all the little sparks from the static electricity. <laughs> I'm guessing that would be the same sort of. <laughs> really, exactly, exactly right. 
On the cover, so the reason it is an old picture of Andy Gray and Dave Watson is uh, the headline story is Andy Gray's World Cup Pledge. Uh, we've also got FA Cup and Scottish Cup previews. My verdict on England, check Captain Zenik Nehoda. And we've got a Middlesbrough team group. Uh, and we always look at the cover price. Cover price for this issue is 28 pence. Bargain, bargain. Absolute bargain, if you ask me. Just just while we're, so while we're still on the tops, I mean, the, the Scotland one is the... Airtex, is it? It's called the the holy one. It's, it's Airtex, but I don't think the England one is. And as you mentioned, Daniel, th- th- that England one, granted, apart from that huge V-neck on it, I would say it's probably my favourite England strip of all time. Well, actually, and somebody somebody recently tweeted me about this. Uh, it was an English person, and I think they thought I was going to be negative about this talk, but they they had no idea my history with this. I just think that's a, the greatest top of all. Mm. Admiral classic, isn't it? That's the that's what you get with an Admiral kit generally, isn't it? So, all right, we're going inside the magazine now. So, pages two and three. Shoot view, the battle soccer must win. If I can say he, uh, here, Andy, you often comment on it being referred to as soccer. I, I challenge you here to find any instance of the game being referred to as football. It's referred to as soccer absolutely throughout the magazine. Yeah. I mean, I think we see in um, adverts for games and things as well. They're called soccer as well. Books are called soccer. And I guess before I was educated on this, I was one of those soccer snobs that thought, soccer's so American, that's it. We don't want anything to do with that. But as you read through all the magazines, all the way through 60s, 70s, 80s, through the mid-80s, early mid-80s, it's mostly referred to as soccer. It's very true in books as well. You think of someone like Don Reavy and his early books, he, he wrote an autobiography of his playing days and he talks about soccer all the time. And there's nothing American about Don Reavy after all. It, so it's interesting. I agree. I grew up thinking, what, what a, you know, that's the word that sort of new fans use, moneyed Arsenal fans with boxes at Highbury and then the Emirates would use. But it turns out you're absolutely right. It was in common use. In fact, I think my dad would, would have used the word soccer, and he's certainly no modern fan. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, I, I don't remember using it as a kid. I don't remember it. No. But, um, I, th- but as I say, I think the turning point was the sort of MLS, the, the National Soccer League in the States. I think when that was trying to push itself into the, into the, the world game, I think people just thought, as I say, a bit snobbery about it, and a bit, no, no, no. So I think that's when all that started. Mm. What, what interested me, a, a different angle on this spread, if you look at it as, as a magazine person, that I, I suppose I am now as editor of, of Nutmeg, about a sixth of the page is dedicated to Scotland. And that's probably a, a general ratio with, with Shoot. But this issue has got quite a lot of Scottish stuff in it, actually. And Shoot was really good for that in my, in my day of Shoot in the 90s, I think. Whereas you wouldn't imagine that with, well, there aren't many football magazines left, but for instance, 442 would never give a sixth to Scottish football these days. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, so we're looking at uh, the shoot views, the editorial, the battle soccer must win. So several of the league's 92 clubs facing closure, pretty much much like today. Bristol City at this point were on the brink. Chelsea were looking at selling Stamford Bridge. Liverpool's gates were down with unemployment in the area being cited as the reason. And Manchester United, even the mighty Manchester United, had a £1.5 million overdraft. Today, obviously, there's many football clubs in trouble uh, at the moment as well. I think the, the interesting area in that is it's, these are clubs higher up the tree 
in trouble, which we don't see so much now because there's, bad, they're all badly, mostly badly run, but they're awash with money and the failing clubs are, are lower down now, aren't they? Which happened then as well. It's just that it's very... Uh, I mean, 1.5 million overdraft to Manchester United is nothing now, that, that given the debts they've actually got now. I, I love how they've, how they've framed that. A staggering ball and chain. 1.5 million. Yeah. So. How would they describe the yeah the, the <laughs> borrowing now? <laughs> Pages two and three look at the FA Cup, which was at the fifth round stage, and uh, they look at match of the day in the Scottish Cup, which was Celtic v Aberdeen. So if we just have a wee look at some of those FA Cup uh, games, the fifth round draw, Spurs v Villa, and there's a potential giant killing with Shrewsbury at home to Ipswich, QPR play Grimsby, Chelsea against Liverpool. Spoiler, games were played on the 13th of February 1982, Chelsea beat Liverpool 2-0. Coventry beat Oxford 4-0, uh, Leicester beat Watford 2-0, Shrewsbury did indeed a uh, giant kill by beating Ipswich Town 2-1, uh, Spurs beat, uh, beat Aston Villa 1-0, and Queen's Park Rangers uh, beat Grimsby 3-1. And uh, 1982, this was, of course, QPR v Spurs in the, in the, uh, the FA Cup final uh, that year. Uh, match of the day in Scotland, Aberdeen v Celtic, where Sparks are bound to fly. Uh, and uh, Aberdeen won that one 1-0 with John Hewitt the scorer of the game's only goal in the 19th minute. And, of course, Aberdeen went on to win the Cup that year. There's some, there were some mammoth games, between, especially between Aberdeen and Celtic back in that sort of period as well. You know, Aberdeen at that point where coming down to Glasgow, you know, they, they, they were basically coming down to win and go away as, as winners. So uh, I remember a couple of games, a, a 3-1 game at Parkhead and a, I think a 2-1 or something as well. Yeah, Aberdeen were right up for it at this point. Just looking there, there'd be, there'd be a picture of Ipswich Town there. I think I can spot George Burley, uh, Alan Brazil, I think. And I think that's Eric Gates in the Ipswich Town's white away strip. Yep. And the Shrewsbury, is that against, did yeah. you say? Yeah, because the, the strip there, I think that's the strip that was used in... Um, oh, what's the name of the movie? What's the name of the movie? Oh, and it's my one of my favourite movies. Final Tap. Final Tap, that's the one, so. I think that's the one. Although maybe maybe a season or two earlier, judging by the the call, but might might be that one. Might be that right, one. So we move on to pages four and five. We've got a news desk. Rangers star seats cap. So this is goalkeeper Jim Stewart. Jim moved from Kilmarnock to Middlesbrough for a hundred and ten thousand pounds. So a, a lot of money for Middlesbrough to spend, especially with what happened next, which we'll come on to later in the uh, issue. It's fair to say. So a year ago, Jim Stewart was a reserve player wondering what the future held in store. He'd come south of the border in a £110,000 move from Kilmarnock to Middlesbrough, but failed to keep his first team place at Ayrson Park. When Rangers came on the scene and offered Borough their money back, Stewart could hardly sign the forms quickly enough. And it's a move he's never regret- regretted. He says, inside nine months, I picked up Scottish Cup and League Cup medals, and I'm really enjoying my football again. Now I'm hoping I can get back into the international picture again. Apparently when uh, Middlesbrough signed Jim Stewart, they they were sort of odds on to sign uh, Alan Ruff. Alan Ruff thought he was going, but the the story is that he he turned up for a Scotland game at Hamden, and he he was met at the door by Alex Cameron, the Daily Record journalist, who said, oh, you must be gutted, Alan. And and Ruff said, what are you talking about? He said, well, Middlesbrough signed Jim Stewart. And apparently that was that was how Ruff found out he wasn't, he wasn't going to medals. How different things could have been for us. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he won two Scotland caps, Jim Stewart. Uh, his first one uh, while he was with Kilmarnock in 1977 against Chile. And he won his second in 1978 
in uh, Jock Steen's first match in charge against Norway when he was with Middlesbrough. Uh, so he played 27 league games in his first season with Borough, 78-79, but then played only five in 79-80 uh, and only two in 1980-81. Rangers came in for him as a replacement for Peter McCloy. And oddly, he never won an international cap while he was, while he was with Rangers. I guess uh, his rival at Middlesbrough might have been Jim Platt by that time, which ex- explains a lot. I was actually reading a Jim Platt uh, focus on Q&A style thing from a magazine the other day uh, in which he was asked his favourite meal and he said fish and chips I'm vegetarian <laughs> which pescatarians will be surprised to hear different rules in the 70s another one we've got uh, Jimmy Nickel here Nickel's long wait so Jimmy Nickel went on loan to Sunderland for a month and didn't play and his loan was extended uh, and I noticed that Jimmy Nickel uh, recently gave his best ever 11 in the BBC website and he picked five Scots, five Northern Irishmen, and only one Englishman. I think it was Jimmy Greenoff, I think it was the only Englishman. Uh, so the big headline on, on the page here is, I Could Strangle Barnes. And it's about Peter Barnes, Ron Atkinson, who's Manchester United. So Peter Barnes was Leeds United at the time. Atkinson uh, was, was his manager at West Brom. And uh, there are times where I could cheerfully strangle him. Peter has always worshipped the ground that George Best walked on, and I am tempted to say that he has as much natural natural talent as George, but unfortunately does not share the Irishman's outstanding competitive spirit. If he could somehow develop that spirit, he would not only please Alan Clark overnight, he would be an automatic choice for any England team. I am saddened to see him struggling at Leeds and just hope he can straighten himself out to catch the plane to the World Cup. Peter Barnes started his career at Manchester City, where his dad Ken was a legendary player, and he had a very successful spell at Man, at Man City where they won the League Cup and they were in Europe at that time, near, near enough every season. Uh, then unexpectedly, he was sold to West Brom before he's moved to Leeds. Uh, and Big Ron came in and signed him for Manchester United, uh, where he played basically about a handful of games. He had quite a long-lasting career, Peter Barnes, and played absolutely all over the place. So he played for Real Betis, Coventry City, Bolton Wanderers, Hull City, Port Vale, Sunderland, uh, Drogdia United. Tampa Bay Rowdies, Northwich Victoria, Wimbledon, Wrexham. Yeah, I, I, I was. I had a thought of trying to find a map and just pinpointing, pinpointing all these clubs. Sorry, I'm going to make a guess that the majority of those were in like a couple year period. Yeah, I think the majority of them were sort of in the last few last few years of his, his career. And uh, he did make the provisional squad of 40 for the 1982 World Cup, but didn't go to Spain. Played his last England international May 1982 in a 2-0 friendly win over Holland, and he gained. 22 caps. Do you have any memories of Peter Barnes as a player, Daniel? Just before my time, really, um, I know that about the big transfer fee that it's talked about. It's never a good sign when a player has got that many entries on his Wikipedia pages. <laughs> Certainly, the, the club I don't associate him that much with is Man United, and that's that's borne out by I'm not having many games there. But certainly, Leeds United and mostly Man City is where I associate him. Yeah. He did play a game for Clyde Bank. So he played in uh, Jim Fallon's testimonial because uh, at the time, Jim Lumsden, former Clyde Bank player, now in the Clyde Bank Hall of Fame, was assistant manager at Leeds. And uh, for Jim Fallon's testimonial, he brought up a number of Leeds players, including uh, Peter Barnes and uh, Eddie Gray. So he did, he did play one game for Clyde Bank uh, against Celtic in Jim Fallon's testimonial. Moving on, then, on uh, on this page, we've got uh, Kevin Reeves, his pledge to City fans. Kevin Reeves, Man City's £1 million buy from Norwich, claims he hasn't given fans value for money. He played 42 league games in that season, another present scoring 13 goals. 
and he scored seven from 40 games the following season. It moves on to Burnley, but after one season, he retired at the age of 26 because of overhip injury. Now, uh, Daniel, uh, Andy and I were talking on a previous uh, podcast just about players' kind of honesty, uh, talking about the form and stuff like that in, in, in magazines. Uh, and here you've got sort of Kevin Reeves claiming he hasn't given fans value for money. It's not the kind of thing that you hear the players talking about these days. No, and you wonder where that comes from. In some cases, it might be that the club don't want players to admit they've been a bit of a flop because it therefore depreciates their value for sell-on, doesn't it? So I think there's all sorts of complications. I don't think humans are any less, less honest and therefore footballers are any less honest. But I think it's just messaging is so much more managed, isn't it? So players don't get to, the, the you know, the news desk compiled by Bill Day. I bet Bill Day had uh, Kevin Reeves' phone number and Kevin Reeves just told Bill Day that and he typed it straight on that lovely typewriter in the image. Um, impossible now. You know, to get to a Man City player, the journalist would have to go through all sorts of guardians um, at, at, at the Etihad. So, yeah. Footballers are no less honest, but the things they're allowed to say are certainly less honest. Just a general thing on on the on the two pages, Tom. And again, we've touched on this before about you know sometimes you'll get three or four little articles about in, in the same page about Highland League clubs or something like that, and you think, well, that that reporter's obviously been up there, and that's where they is for a period of time. If you look, there's quite a lot of these which are all Northern England based. You got. You've got Sunderland, you've got Preston, you know, all those, and then obviously the Scottish ones. But I'm just wondering if that is the sort of thing that did go on where these journalists were roving, you know, roaming about the country, and that's how you would get these clusters of little news stories within the same sort of region. Yeah, it must be the case with your Highland example if uh, Bill Day was on holiday, must not it? <laughs> He's got to file his <laughs> copy and write about what's around him. <laughs> I've got to come yeah. up with something. <laughs> uh, the, the, just that the story that caught my eye was Swindon star sacrifice at the bottom, which is about goalkeeper Jimmy Allen, who for years had objected to playing on Sundays, but had now grudgingly agreed to do so f- for re- on religious grounds. Very, very interesting thing. You don't hear of that much at all, really. I'm not even sure if it was very prevalent then. It just it just struck me a bit. You're quite right. You never hear about that now. The guy's not playing. Not wanting to play on a Sunday for religious reasons. I can't even remember the last time I considered it. And maybe that's, you know, that's so long ago that that actually was a thing. I mean, that's the thing. When you when you read that, it's like, oh, that's right. That, that used to be a thing. Mm. I think either, is it Jake Humphreys or Dan Walker that doesn't work on a Sunday for that reason, isn't there as well? One of the presenters. Well, didn't, didn't, wasn't there something with Jonathan Edwards? Wasn't sort of Jonathan Edwards? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Just, so I, I think I've never heard of it in football. That's the difference. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> interesting. Well, well, maybe we'll, we'll try and keep an eye out for that in, fu- in, fu- in mm. future issues if we see somebody not playing on yeah. Sunday. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be back there. Wigan Pip Liverpool. Wigan boss Larry Lloyd reckons he's a real starlet from under the noses of Liverpool. 19 year old John Butler from Merseyside. Club Prescott Cables. I hadn't heard of John Butler, but he went on to make over 300 appearances for Wigan uh, in two spells, plus over 250 games for Stoke City. So I hadn't heard of him, but he definitely had a, a, a serious football career. The whistle has been blown on two East London schoolgirls. 
whose goal is to play football with boys. Two girls, Jane Bartley and Hope Powell, both 15, have been told they cannot play for their school, even though their sportsmaster said they are as good, if not better, than the boys in the team. Jane and Hope, pupils at Abbey Wood School in South East London, are in breach of women's FA rules, which say girls should not play in boys' matches. This story, though, does have a happy ending. So, despite the protestations of their male coach, they were, of course, booted out of their school team, and from there, they both joined Millwall Lionesses. Of the two, Hope Powell is, of course, a bit better known. Uh, She went on to play for England, gaining 66 caps and scoring 35 goals, while Jane Bartley went on to play for Wales. Uh, Jane Bartley was Millwall Lionesses record appearance holder. Uh, She turned out for the club more than 300 times and also scored more than 200 goals, despite a serious knee injury, keeping her out for two years from 1987. Uh, Hope Hill's probably best known as the England ladies or England women's team coach from 1998 to 2013. Again, the kind of thing that you used to see around about then, the 80s, 70s, is girls not being allowed to play football. Again, absolutely not the kind of thing you see now because we've got organised football for, for women and professional football for women, certainly south, south of the border. I think, I think when you put it with the Swindon player not wanting to play on a Sunday, it sort of really ages the magazine, doesn't it? You know, it's definitely of a period which is like in in history, long gone history, thankfully. Alrighty, let's move on. So, Dalglish Hattrick is simply Kenny celebrates the birth of his third child, Lindsay. And uh, we've got uh, Neil Webb, 18-year-old son of former Reading forward Doug Webb, who has been given some scintillating performances for his dad's old club. Now some big sides are looking at him, including QPR and Barnsley. Are we, are we, are we not spending a bit more time on that brilliant photograph Kelly of yeah, Kelly like. Douglas? It's in a, the hospital room with Marina and Kenny and the new arrival of Lindsay. You know, the, the face is, is, is unmistakable as Kelly and Paul. Um, absolutely brilliant wee picture. And Kenny was his Lyle and Scott golfing jumper. Yeah, I wonder if he's just back from around. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're just looking at uh, Neil Webb, 18-year-old son of former Reading forward Doug Webb. Neil, an England youth midfield star, includes second division promotion challengers QPR and Barnsley among his many admirers. One of the stars of England's youth tours to Yugoslavia and Australia, Neil made his league debut in the 2-2 draw at Mansfield in February 1980 when he was still only 16. His dad, uh, Dougie Webb, uh, Redden was his only league club. Scored 92 goals and 201 appearances, all in either Division 3 or Division 3 South. And Neil got his big move from Redding to Portsmouth uh, in the summer of 1982 and uh, went on to become a sort of established England international. It's interesting always to read about these names at the start of their careers, but Neil Webb in particular, because he's perhaps more well-known now for the what happened after his career, which was that he became a postman and um, you know various other things. So it's sort of quite bittersweet to see the, the, the joyful young years that a footballer has and knowing that things become quite difficult or can become quite difficult for them. There's another wee bit here, Exhibitionist, it says, Celtic are ready to fly anywhere to play exhibition games to help boost the Parkhead coffers. Manager Bill McNeil explains it is becoming increasingly important to make as much money as possible to be able to survive at the top level. Clubs just cannot survive in the money they get through the gates in domestic matches, so they've got to look at other avenues. Celtic are already drawing up a fixture list of one-off games for the closed season. 
It's a, it's a bit for Celtic who at the time predominantly in, in the Scottish League with probably every other season playing in Europe. It's like, well, if they're struggling at that point, if they if they need to if they're saying, Oh, we need to make money, you can just imagine what the finances must have been like of teams underneath them, you know, the smaller teams in Scotland. But I just love the they're ready to fly. It does make it sound a bit needy and a bit sort of desperate, but I don't I think I think it was probably more a case of it was just being realised that this is an avenue that will bring money in, and so they have to start trying to make the most of it, which is absolutely fine. No problem with that whatsoever. There's a wee bit here, Scotland's best, which is Dumbarton's Graham Sinclair, is the best right-back in Scotland. He's better than Danny McGrain, recognised as the finest right-back Scotland's produced for many years, better than Aberdeen, Stuart Kennedy, and better than Rangers' Sandy Jarden. This is the controversial opinion of Dumbarton's director, Alex Wright. He gives his vote to the club's 23-year-old defender for the following reasons. I've seen the lads in the Premier Division, but Graham is the tops, and I know he would be even better with a bigger club. This sounds much like an invitation for offers. Yeah, just a club director just bumping up his uh, one of his players in the hope for a £100,000 transfer bid. Yeah, I mean, just before that last sentence, yeah, that sounds, reading all the way through that, that's all that was in my head. This is somebody who's on the transfer, or is going to be on the transfer list, and then right at the end, they just, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Spoiler, uh, August 1982, four months later, Sinclair signed, or six months later, Sinclair signed for Celtic for £65,000. Uh, so he's best remembered uh, by Celtic fans for his, uh, his man-marking job on 34-year-old Johan Cruyff in the European Cup tie with Ajax in Amsterdam. Was that his debut or was that... Don't know if it was his if it was his debut, but it, certainly it was his one standout game for Celtic. I think that's why he's quite well remembered. He's quite fondly remembered by Celtic fans, despite no really establishing himself on the team. Anything you've seen, Daniel, on, on these pages before we before we move on? Only one that we haven't mentioned: uh, Wolves chairman wanting to move the season from April to November, which is something that comes up every now and again. Still, doesn't it? Uh, interesting. Any thoughts on that? I'm very much a traditionalist, as you probably know, Tom. I love football weather. I love mud. I love cold. <laughs> and I love football in autumn as well. So it's hard to get your head around. There are times when you go to a match and it's unseasonably warm and you get to wear your T-shirt and you think, I quite like this. But imagine how boring the winter would be without football. Is there an argument right. then just to never stop it? <laughs> it hardly does anyway, like, well, until recent <laughs> events. But yes, you're probably, probably right. The never-ending season, that's what we were in. Yeah, well, I was just looking at something on the BBC website that was saying that, that it's effectively a never-ending season. Yeah. Uh, there's about five days or yeah. something like that without any football before next season starts. But interesting thing I, I was thinking about, because we don't really know at the moment when the semi-professional season here is going to start. Mm. I'm talking now about the new West of Scotland Football League, perhaps League One, League Two in Scotland. They can't really play behind closed doors. There's no TV money. I mean, personally, I don't know if it can come back while there's still social distancing, but this might actually be the chance to try out a sort of April to November season, because perhaps by spring, those kind of games will be able to come back. So you never you never know. This might mm. be a sort of a necessity. They might actually be able to do an April to November season. Just uh, one of the little articles in the, in the bottom right-hand corner was about Hibs chairman yeah. called Tom Hart. He must have had a bit of a hard, hard time being called Hart as a Hibs chairman, uh, but he got a, a birthday cake for his 60th birthday and he donated it to the local hospital. So Tom Hart has very much a heart. 
That's crap, isn't it? I shouldn't write. <laughs> I think that didn't they write? Yeah, <laughs> I think they did. did they? <laughs> I think they made the joke like that, didn't they? I think Bill Day Bill Day was running out of news by that part of the page, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. So let's let's turn the page now. It's pages six and seven, and it's all systems go for Gray. Nothing will stop me making Scotland's World Cup squad. Andy Gray um, is obviously trying to boost his own chances to get into the 1982 World Cup squad. Uh, Scotland striker makes no secret of the fact that the main reason he joined Wolves and that record-breaking £1.5 million transfer uh, was John Barnwell. And Barnwell has now left the club. So uh, I don't really want to say too much right now. People have heard enough about it all. I have a deep feeling for the club, which means a lot to me. I said what I thought, I might offend a few people. Time isn't right to do this. Two things occupy Gray's thoughts right now. Helping Wolves to avoid relegation and securing a place in Scotland's World Cup 22. Uh, and so, spoiler, he, he didn't uh, gain a, a spot in Scotland's World Cup squad uh, in 1982. He got left out of the 1978 squad as well when he looked as if uh, he, was, he was on form to get in it. And he got left out of the 1982 squad. Um, which apparently, according to his autobiography, he was absolutely raging about. That's incredible. I mean, he was he's certainly out of the period one of Scotland's best strikers, without a doubt. Uh, but I just like that. Uh, I, f- I found that a bit humorous. I don't really want to say too much right now. But if you join me next week for Shoot Magazine, then you'll be able to read all about it in my my article there. You know, yeah, it's, it's the fact that he, he didn't make these. I mean, it's it's all hindsight. <laughs> it's all what ifs, but. I'm, you know, a striker of his calibre and the form that he was on, I think, you know, you've you, you got to take him. you got to take him. Nah, he was always a guy who could get you goals, uh, and, and degree. But yeah, I think he sort of flitted in and out of the, in and out of the Scotland squad. For me, he sort of peak years with, with those years at Everton, which is relatively late in his career. Uh, and I don't recall him being a sort of Scotland regular round about, round about then, but... Always a guy who was there or thereabouts for Scotland, Andy Gray. Did, did his autobiography give any reasons for it? He did kind of accept that uh, Wolves weren't doing that well. Uh, he said that he was a striker who relied on service and he wasn't really getting it at, at Wolves. When was the last time Scotland picked players based on them doing well at their, their clubs? There's a few that have been playing and they've not even been getting games. Different days. Let's not go down that route. I was mesmerised by the Wolves shirt because it has two badges, I think. It has the three Wolves and the WW. <laughs> Not sure what that was about. <laughs> I've never se- I've never seen that before. Yeah. I just couldn't make their minds up. And then when they changed that kit, they changed it to the Wolves, the Wolves head. So it was a, a yeah. different badge I get. Because I get. those three Wolves are quite pathetic Wolves. They're just really skinny, unfrightening. The idea of being called Wolves is to petrify people, surely. <laughs> But they're just uh, skipping along in the forest <laughs> there somewhere. So, and beside that, we've got um, Cassell's Delivers the Goods. And again, you were just talking about um, Neil Webb becoming a postman after his career had finished. But uh, uh, this is about a guy who was a, who was a postman before he was playing football. Even though Keith Castles, whose seven FA Cup goals have given Oxford United a place in Saturday's fifth round, went to a non-soccer playing school in North London, his number one ambition was always to play at a very highest level. But after failing to attract anybody but the Mornington Crescent post office team for whom he worked, his chances of achieving that aim seemed remote. Yet now Castles is the hottest property in the third division market after grabbing the nation's attention with a breathtaking performance for Oxford United against Brighton and the biggest shock of the FA Cup this season, a match Oxford won 3-0 at the Goldstone ground. 
Bachelor Castles, son of a Jamaican, worked for four years as a postman at the North West London Distribution Office. In why, why do we need the bachelor detail? <laughs> <laughs> Bizarre. Is it a, co- a code yeah, word? Yeah. I just... <laughs> He's asked for it to be yeah. put into camp. <laughs> so he scored seven goals in the FA Cup. He went on to play for Southampton. And uh, after football, he joined the police force and he rose to the rank of detective sergeant. It seems to be that sort of, there was a, a path in football to the police force afterwards. Jim Hermiston is certainly one of them. A few others I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but yeah. Turning the page, page... Eight we're on to now. Andy and I talk about this quite a lot, Daniel, but we'll give you a chance to dip in here to this advertisement. Soccer record albums and soccer video films. I just love love the idea of these albums as, as you to do with commentary and music as well on them. Brilliant. Best £3.80 you could spend. It's, it's interesting to see this coming in, isn't it? People having videos at home and things like that of matches. It feels quite a early 80s, late 70s thing in there. Just brilliant. I, I would love to track down one of these albums. Look at the prices of those tapes. I mean, £30. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't <laughs> It wasn't a hobby for everyone, was it? That? <laughs> you could probably get them down the Barrowlands for a pound, though. So. <laughs> yeah, some crazy prices there, yeah. And they're only even... There's a, yeah, World Cup 1970 is only half an hour. 20 quid, otherwise it's 53 minutes <laughs> yeah. or 37 pounds. Yeah. The magazine's 28 pence, so you're talking about over 100 times the magazine. I mean, that's two years worth of shoot magazine. Yeah. On that. That's absolutely crazy. So I've mentioned before about that, and it's something that I, I, I fancy doing in my, my adulthood is getting a, a pull-down projector and getting some of these videos and just shutting the curtains and watching. I think there's something immersive about that that you don't get just playing back stuff on, on the telly or something like that. So I, I think I'd really quite fancy building up a wee collection of that, and all by myself, obviously, because there won't be anybody else. It's quite as sad. I've agonisingly got some reels that were my granddad to think of, uh, 60s m- matches that I don't have anything to play on. So that was a stage before that. So there are little green capsules with, uh, one of them is Le- the Leeds versus Chelsea Cup finals of the early 70s. And so that's, yeah, that would be a, a similar project. Had you ever seen them when you were young? No, I just found them when we, my mum was moving house. I've got a box full of things like that. So I need a projector to go go through it all. Could be some gems. Absolutely. On the same page there, we've got the European Championship draw. And the headline is same again, England. The draw for the 1984 Euro qualifiers was made. England were again drawn with Hungary who they qualified behind in the qualifiers for the 1982 World Cup, despite beating them both home and away. Spoiler, there was only one team qualified from, from a five-team group. It was Denmark that went through top of the group with England second, Greece, Hungary and Luxembourg. Luxembourg finished bottom of, of the table with uh, no points. I don't want to perpetuate this myth that England get easy groups, but look at Scotland's. Belgium, East Germany and Switzerland. And look at England. Hungary, Greece, Denmark and Luxembourg. As I say, I don't want to perpetuate the myth that England get easy groups, but that's an easy group. A bit rough, though, that you only had one qualifying from each group. England were runners-up to Denmark. They're just looking at the points. Denmark 13 points. England were on 12 points. Uh, the goal difference, Denmark were plus 12. England plus 20. 
largely down to them beating Luxembourg 9-0. So it was, there was eight groups and the, only the winners qualify for the final tournament. Just backing up Andy's assertion that Scotland had a particularly hard group, Scotland finished bottom of that group uh, on four points with only one win and two draws with three defeats. Page nine, we've got what's on in Spain, Dave Watson's World Cup comeback. Southampton's Dave Watson announced his retirement from international football four months ago, now having been transferred for £50,000 to Stoke City, the 35-year-old defender admits he wants to go to Spain after all. He does. <laughs> he did win two caps while with Stoke City. Again, like Peter Barnes, he made the provisional 40-man squad, but he didn't actually go to Spain. So his first cap for England was 3rd April 1974, the 0-0 draw in Lisbon uh, against Portugal in a friendly when he was 27, and his last cap was the 2nd of June 1982 in a 1-0 draw the Iceland pre-World Cup friendly match in Reykjavik, aged 35 years and 240 days. Dave Watson uh, played with Sunderland, Manchester City, Vedder Bremen, Stoke City, and the spell in the NASL with Vancouver Whitecaps, and he played uh, Derby, Derby County uh, at the end of his career, 83-84. Any memories of, uh, of, of Dave Watson? I remember the next Dave Watson more who played for Everton, but I was eight weeks old precisely when this magazine came out. So it's just a name, one of those names that you hear. I'm just trying to work out the boots. So there's two strikes and I've got an idea in my head, but I can't remember what it was. Is it pa- Patrick's? Are they Patrick ones? Maybe. They look like it, yeah. Yeah, the Patrick boots, yeah, Kevin Keegan popularised, yeah. I don't think it's what I thought, but yeah, you're absolutely right, yeah. So, Andy, can I hand over to you now? Yes. Shall we do the focus on? Yes. Right. So, so Daniel, you, you'll be obviously more than, than aware of the focus on sections that you get in magazines where you'll ask famous footballer of the day a bunch of set questions. So, we're going to turn the tables on yourself and ask you some questions. So, there's no passing. <laughs> Usually, we allow passing, but I think we've got to the stage now where... There's nothing There's nothing bad to trip you up with. So here we go. Full name. Daniel Joseph Gray. What's your birthplace? Stockton on Tees. What was your first car? Can't drive. Okay. <laughs> What's your, who's your favourite player of all time? Tony Mowbray. Who's your favourite football team? Middlesbrough. Okay. What's your most memorable match? Stau Bucharest comeback in the semi-final of the UEFA Cup. To win 4-2. Yeah, I remember that very well. What's been the biggest thrill of your life? doesn't have to be football. Oh, it has to be becoming a father then. But if it was football, it would be when we went 1-0 up in extra time of the Coca-Cola League Cup final in 1997. Okay, good What's been your biggest disappointment? That 1996-97, I'm sticking to football here, season um, <laughs> when Middlesbrough got to cup finals that I was at and were relegated. Uh, it could have mm-hmm. been something beautiful but ended in tears at Elland Road. What's the best country that you've visited? It's a, it's a between Italy and Spain, predictable answer perhaps, but I think just Spain because I'm in love with Spain. Okay. What's your favourite food? Maybe related? No, I'd say curry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Miscellaneous like, so give me two things that you like doing. Writing and looking out of train windows. Okay. Did a lot of travelling then? I, I did, and I can't wait to do so again. <laughs> so on, on the flip side, give me two 
miscellaneous dislikes, so two things that drive you up the wall. Having to be in shops, apart from bookshops and football club shops, um, and when people begin sentences with the word so. I think I've done that a couple of times already. Okay, I'll I'll keep on that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. Okay, what's your favourite TV show of all time? Oh, of all time, Phoenix Nights, the great Peter Kay uh, comedy. Okay. What's your favourite singer? So you can give me two singers or bands. Or oh, singers or bands. Manic Street Preachers and Oasis. Okay. Uh, Very 90s answer. And favourite actors, same again. You have got two. Michael Sheen for the brilliance of Brian Clough in The Damned United. Mm-hmm. I'll just stick to it. Okay. <laughs> Who's your best friend? Oh, I think my daughter is my best friend these days, you know. Yeah. She's she's good fun. <laughs> and let's face it, I don't see anyone else. <laughs> That's a brilliant night. Yeah, <laughs> Who's been the biggest influence on you? Parents, definitely. Mum and dad. Um, they're not together, but uh, in their own separate ways, always. And, and, and more and more, the older I grow, especially as a parent. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. And the final one. So... Which person in the world would you most like to meet? A living or? Uh, we, 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 I think we opened this up from very early doors, so alive or dead? Brian Clough. Brian Clough, definitely. <laughs> in the sort of, not towards the end when he wasn't so well and drinking too much, but in his great pomp of the late 70s and early 80s, I'd love to have probably ironically had a good session of drinking with him. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, great answers. That's we got through them pretty quickly as well. So I'm guessing you, you've probably thought about a lot of those or been asked them in the past. Not really, but I suppose when you're so in love with one football club and, and that Brian Clough's included in that as a Middlesbrough man and a former player, it, it comes a bit more easily to you, doesn't it? Great stuff. Okay, so Tom, back to you. Yeah, well, I, I was going to ask you, uh, Daniel, it's been brought up a few times on the podcast. People have mentioned uh, Nutmeg, so you've recently been appointed editor of Nutmeg. So I just wonder if you could just tell the listeners a wee bit uh, about Nutmeg magazine. Yeah, Nutmeg was started a few years ago by Ali Palmer, fantastic designer and, and still publisher of Nutmeg and heavily involved with 50-50 on it all, really. We just wanted to give me a new job title. Um, and the point of Nutmeg has been to give fans of Scottish football and people interested in Scottish football a quality long read. It comes out every three months. It has about 70 to 80,000 words in it. It treats every team equally. So whether you're a fan of Ochenlech, Talbot or Celtic, you know, the, the pieces in there will treat the clubs equally. It covers historical things. It covers the game now. It covers pieces about the future of the game you hope with that size of magazine and it is beautifully designed it's you know it costs a tenner so it should should give you good you know you need something good for that kind of money and we very much believe we provide that i i, I genuinely believe it has something for everyone in there and it should do because this is you know this country has such a fantastic variation of football clubs of football interests of football people 
Um, I hope it deep down it's you know it's going to interrogate things and it's going to have things that it's not happy with in the Scottish game but deep down it comes from a place of love I as an outsider am totally in love with Scottish football I think sometimes it takes an outsider actually to, to, to see the beauty of it to see the authenticity of it and I hope that Nutmeg's part of a movement with things like a terrace and a view from the terrace to to look at our game more positively than perhaps was the case 10 or 15 years ago. So it's, it comes from a place of, of love. And I think that's clear when you hold the magazine in your hands. I think, I mean, I, I get the magazine and, you know, when you hear that thud through the letterbox and you think, there it is. It's, you know, you don't get that online with anything. You don't get that virtually. No. And that's very much a conscious decision by Ali, who's worked in print all his life, but is, you know, a modern person who reads things online was the thought that, hang on, there is a market for this still. Loads of us still love print. What, what is a really nice example of that is each time it comes out every three months, people will send you a photo of nutmeg and a pint or nutmeg sat by a lock somewhere. There's a fellow in Sweden that always sends, he's having a dram in a British bar in, in uh, Gothenburg. And you think there's something wonderful about you, some pieces of paper and just taking yourself away from a screen. And there is a desire for that still. And I think more than ever, actually, I know print's really struggling and newspapers are struggling. But look at the way we love these old magazines. That is a human tendency and it hasn't gone away. The trick is to try and get younger readers into that habit. And we are we are seeing that. We have young subscribers who are sending us these pictures. And you're right, it's a, even for me, and I've been, you know, every time the magazine comes, I've seen it time and again in PDF form. It's nothing like when I open the same envelope you get when it arrives at ours and, and I hold it and I smell it and all of the rest. So that's, that isn't going to die. That, if anything, is going to grow as we've become so dominated by screens. And we've seen that a lot during lockdown. People are desperate to, to read paper and just yeah, get... And, and one of the other things you see on Twitter is when people put a photograph of their collection, where they've got the number that's one, two, three, four. Yeah, that's a, 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 lov a lovely thing. We, we actually um, had a television producer contact us a few months ago because their lead character in a crime drama they, they thought he should have every copy of nutmegs lived on this clean modern barge and it's it fit his character but we don't actually know what his character is he could well have been a serial killer we realized after we were sort of happily trying to make that happen <laughs> um, a, a wee question about that and just from my memory i've got it in one of my bookshelves i can't find my number 10 for some reason but it's in the house somewhere is the number one different to the rest of them yeah, with with um, I can't you won't be able to see, but it doesn't. Yes, it's, it doesn't have a, a number on the spine, and it's it's just a sort of plain. So, so was that was that a, an initial idea that the spines were going to match and everything, or was that done after that? I think very much with number one, it was a case of seeing. As far as I remember, I was I was but a writer. Um, was seeing how it went in some ways, um, and with it doing very well. It was clear early on there's a lot of mileage in this magazine and it, it hopefully, you know, conditions and finance committee, it'll be around for a long, long time because of that. And I think, you know, it was Ali's first go of designing a, a football magazine. So probably the idea of putting the numbers on just came after. I'll have to ask him that. The one story you won't want me to repeat is you'll, you'll, you'll notice when you do line them up on your shelf that the, the, the pattern doesn't quite match because a mistake was made with one of the spines. I think we should market that as a rarity, but he still cringes whenever we mention it, so it's the unmentionable nutmeg thing. Listen, I, I, I am big on um, old football cards and, you know, with the paint jobs and little little inconsistencies, little errors on what makes these things. It keeps I'll tell him that. 
<laughs> but um, just talking about the spines, one of the things, um, and I can't remember, it was relatively recently, and I think Rangers with the programmes did, so if you got all the, the programmes and put them together, it actually makes a, a picture. Yeah, I love that. That sort of yes. thinking. Obviously, it's from people who do this as a job, but that sort of thinking, I just think, it takes a bit of effort to do it, but it's a relatively small effort for something that somebody can look at and go, you know, yeah, look at that, that's brilliant. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice thing if you're creating an object thinking that someone's going to keep them all. And, and so, yeah, to do that, I've seen that with a series of children's books as well. Those of us that love these things tend to like lining them up, don't we? In a way that sadly a shoot magazine doesn't stack so well unless you've got the right kind of shelving. Can we talk to me a bit about your own writing, uh, Daniel? Because obviously you've, you've had uh, a number of books out, I think, the last three in reasonably quick succession. Saturday 3pm, Scribbles in the Margin, Black Boots and Football Pinks. Saturday 3pm, Black Boots and Football Pinks are, are, are celebrations, really just a celebration of football and things to do with football and Scribbles in the Margin, a celebration of, of books. All three of them are sort of really showing off things you love and highlighting things that other people love about books and about, about football. Mm. Yeah, it, Saturday 3pm came about during one of those periods I have where lots of things about football are really upsetting and irritating me. And it, Four or five years ago, it was when, specifically, it was when the FA Cup third round, it was announced it would be played over five or six days, which just appalled me. I, I know it doesn't have as much resonance rightly because the Scottish Cup's a wonderful thing in its own right in Scotland but the FA Cup third round to me is magical it was a sort of second Christmas day so to, to cut a long story short I was then in a pub Weatherspoons in Durham uh, with my little girl who was five or six then good parenting you'll agree and it had one of these vast libraries that some pubs have to try and make them look intelligent and so to keep her entertained I was saying pick daddy out a green book pick daddy a red book pick daddy a blue book she brought this blue book to me it was called delight by jb Priestley. now jb Priestley has been one of my favorite writers for years he died in the early 1980s but i've long been trying to read all his stuff and I'd never heard of this one. It was called Delight. It was 118 little essays about things that still pleased him about life after the World War II in the time of austerity. Things like smoking a pipe in bed, things like annoying a civil servant. And I loved the idea of just writing about the little things. And I thought, are the little things in football, I'm not talking that have gone, but that still exist, that I still love. Why do I bother? Why do I go from Edinburgh to Middlesbrough every couple of weeks? And on the train home back up to Edinburgh, I wrote out a big long list and I found there were loads of things I loved about the game. Things from seeing, a, one of the very first one in the book is seeing a ground from the train. So it's sort of 800 words on why that's a joyous thing. I had Starks Park in my mind for that one, actually. Right through to things like the sound of the ball hitting the bar. So on the pitch things, things about fan culture, simple things about the smell of catering vans and, and all of these. So I wrote them down, proposed them as a book in that style of the J.B. Priestley delight, which is acknowledged in all of these books. He's completely the inspiration. So it's amazing that that happened just because my daughter was bored in the Weatherspoons pub. But what happened with those books, I sat and write, wrote them and I thought, what if this is just me? What if I'm the only person that looks at football grounds from a train? Is this a bit geeky and strange? But it wasn't. They rang bells with people. Um, black boots and football pinks was about things that have generally gone actually it was it should have done them the other way around so that as the title suggests there was a title there was a one on black boots there was an entry on football pinks the saturday evening papers all of those little things that have 
generally disappeared from the games and they again struck a chord with people and that's the key to these books is that people do read them and go I feel like that and they get in touch and at least once a month someone will send me a picture of a football ground from a train which reassures me and so I've just finished a couple of months ago writing the next 50 delights delights which are out at the end of October and that wasn't hard again I had about 30 left over I mean I didn't even write one about when goalkeepers go forward I don't know how I missed that the first time around loved writing that this time happily I wrote it all before football went away I might have struggled to remember why I love football but it's done it's on the way and it'll be out in October just for completeness does that Weatherspoon still have that book in it or did it it does not no it fitted perfectly into my wife's handbag I'm sorry sorry Tim thingy but there you are deserves it <laughs> yeah some might say yes <laughs> When we met a few months ago, you were you were saying to me you were writing a book on fanzines. Try, trying, I still haven't got the deal off the ground on that one, but um, very much researching still and hoping it happens. It was all systems go when I saw you, but there was a big slowdown in commissioning from publishers with the usual uh, coronavirus so I'm hoping that picks up again I've, just after I saw you I, I went to Portobello into a charity shop and found a, a, one of those dream finds about about 200 fanzines in a, a basket at the back of the shop and the woman I got so many that the woman behind the counter gave up counting and just said just give me a tenner <laughs> <laughs> are you still looking to hunt fanzines down very much yeah um one reason is a practical one is that it's so prohibitively expensive to get copies of things from libraries. They charge extortionate amounts, British Library, the National Library of Scotland. So if I can just get them myself, then I can scan them nicely myself. So practical reason, but also, of course, archives are closed at the moment. So um, I, I just have to hide them from my wife because it's, I'm clearly profiting from men that have been told to throw their things away and I'm just bringing them into our So if any of our listeners have got any fanzines lying around, you'd be happy to have... Uh, very much very interesting They're just a, such a vibrant movement if you, you think about Medibank Thistle for instance I, I counted that they had five fanzines on the go at one time you've got more fanzines than away supporters at times it's just amazing <laughs> all right we go back into we go back into the magazine then so we're uh, over the page now and we're looking at world cup stars to watch so obviously 1982 we're heading uh, towards the spain world cup uh, jesus zamora or Jesus Zamora, uh, Spain. You could call him the Jeffrey Boycott of Spanish football. <laughs> no, I don't really what, know. what a line, what a line. <laughs> uh, I don't really know what that means. He's deadly serious, dedicated to his profession, and doesn't let a great many smiles escape. Thing. Is, is that it that Jeffrey Boycott well yeah yeah I, I don't, you can't compare Zamora's playing style Boycott was a very attritional cricketer famed for never taking any risks and just constantly scoring ones and not running <laughs> so uh, that's not Zamora really as far as I so remember uh, Zamora began his football uh, with all the other local lads in the beach games at low tide on the Playa de la Concha before moving on to Real Sociedad's nursery side San Sebastian yeah, whereas boycotts from Barnsley, so it's, it's falling down, isn't it? Basically, he's, he's, he's just, oh, that's that's the only... Yeah. yeah. One of the big games to emerge, one of the big names to emerge from the 1980 European Championship finals, uh, Zamora lets slip a rare smile when he admits, I always seem to play well against England. It's the, the Spanish kit there. I, I love when colours like this, that probably shouldn't go together work. I mean, they've got red top, 
blue shorts with white and red sort of piping on it, and then it's black socks with red and yellow, and it's it's almost like that that Liverpool against Watford scenario where Liverpool ended up playing with three different parts of a kit, but it just works beautifully. Yeah, yeah, it does. Even those stripes that look like Watford socks uh, make them look like Watford socks seem to work, don't they? <laughs> so Zamora had played against England on two occasions up to this point, uh, 18th of June 1980 in the European Championships when England won 2-1. Uh, and then again in a friendly on 25th of March 1981 at Wembley, where Zamora scored the winner. And he played against them after this in, in the World Cup in the second phase match, uh, when England, both England and Spain get knocked out after a 0-0 draw. And that was actually Zamora's last match uh, for Spain. And he was a one-club man playing his whole career with Real Sociedad. So the other World Cup player to watch here is Oleg Blocking of uh, Dynamo Kiev and the USSR. And uh, he's pictured there going up for a high ball during the World Cup qualifier with Joey Jones of Wales. Uh, he's wearing that uh, classic Russia strip there with the CCCP across it. And Joey Jones is in, I guess, a classic Wales kit with the white, with the white sleeves. And uh, Joey Jones, one of the rare players at that time to be sporting tattoos. Ah, that's you've true. Seen his, his right forearm. It's funny, isn't it, God? Yeah, never thought of that. <laughs> so five, five years. After this, from a shoot magazine, there was a, and I'm looking at it just now, there was a article about blocking and how, I'll read this out to you. Scottish Cup holder St Mirren are making a sensational move to sign Russian international striker Ollie Blocking. Saints boss Alex Smith has had talks with the Soviet master of sport and hopes to cleanse a £200,000 deal for the Dynamo Kiev Ace. Just incredible that there was, once again, St Mirren involved with you know, historically huge transfer fees back then. It's, um, can you imagine Oleg Blocking playing for St Mirren? That's absolutely incredible. Born on October 5th, 1952, Oleg inherited superb sprinting power from his mother, who was the Soviet 100 metres hurdles champion. Uh, his speed, skill and deadly finishing brought him a league debut with Dynamo Kiev at 17 and he began his international career with the 1972 Olympic team where he was nicknamed the Ukrainian Gazelle thanks to his sprinting. Scotland will have, will certainly have to keep a close watch on him, although in Danny McGrain and Frankie Gray, they have two of Europe's steadiest fullbacks. Yeah, so of course he did play against uh, Scotland in the 1982 World Cup. Across the page there, we've got Stick With Us, yet another great sticker collection from Panini coming in April, España 82. Imagine how, how you would have felt as, say, a 12-year-old seeing that page thinking there's a new Panini coming out. That's what I was just about to say, because for me, and I've said this many a time, Spain 82 was the World Cup for my, my lifetime. You know, I would have been, how old do I have been, 10 at the time. Everything was magical about it. it was a, I remember it a scorching hot summer, the TV, the the images of it, it was just, there was something magical about it. It's never been bettered for me and it's never been repeated for me. Seems, yeah, it seems to always be the World Cup when you ten, doesn't yeah. it? I've, I've seen that elsewhere. As well. My, mine's Italia 90 and I feel exactly like that. The, the very colours of this lovely advert, though, do just take you to a magical time, don't they? I'll even excuse the overuse of exclamation marks, which which is what I should have said as my pet hate. Oh, because right, I'm, I'm, I'm a big I'm a big believer. Every, every in. sentence there, though, that's a bit much. <laughs> Actually, there was there was um, one of the magazines, Karen Barkey, wasn't it? The, the that magazine. There might have been match actually that all they did. They just everything was finished with a, an expert. 
but yeah, the, looking at this and it just makes me think of the album and I can I can picture it, I can feel it, I can you know, like said, we're talking about the Not Mine magazine, I can feel it, I can smell it. You know, it's just everything about it was just magical. It's, it's, it's you know, I don't have that magazine that um sticker album, um unfortunately, but it is one that I'm keeping my eye on. But actually it's, it's you may or may not know the sort of prices that these ones go for in any sort of condition is is a bit prohibitive, but yeah, for me, be, the best World Cup. So turning over the page then, page 12, so this is a wee photo uh, piece, if looks could kill, so this is basically players looking angry with one another, mainly with their, well, in a couple of instances with their teammates. Uh, John Lukic, Leeds goalkeeper, making his point to teammate Byron Stevenson, so two of them are obviously having a wee dispute there. Ipswich defender Steve McCall learns the hard way and gets an ear bashing from Terry Butcher. Uh, Terry Butcher is clearly raging uh, with him there. Uh, and that one there, Brian Robson and Martin O'Neill, I think that's stretching the point a wee bit. I don't even know if Brian Robson's actually looking at Man City's Martin O'Neill there. Yeah, I think, I think that one is just pulled faces rather than anger or uh, anything. And then we've got Ali Robertson of West Brom, clearly upset at the ref's decision, but not as upset as the grounded Garth Crooks of Spurs. I would, I would argue against that. I think he looks more upset than Garth Crooks. So uh, some nice, some nice kits there. That uh, Ipswich kit, quite smart, and uh, that Manchester City kit, which was a similar style of the Scotland kit at the time. This sort of umbro template kit. That was the white piping down the, yeah. the corner bit. Quite a smart, quite a smart strip. I think um, the the John Lukich one is he's trying to tell him I lost it in the floodlights, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, John, it's all to be remembered for here, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you punch one ball into your own goal. <laughs> so we jump on to pages 14 and 15. And then, so this is another uh, another World Cup preview. So, Spania 82 World Cup countdown. Bosses will find it hard to select their final squads for Spain. Tough going. So, I'm going to have a wee look here. So, uh, shoot does the England, Northern Ireland and Scotland squads. The, they predict who will be going to Spain and they've broken them down into definites, probables and possibles. So I've just had a wee look at who went and who didn't. So of the Scottish definites, Billy Thompson and Ray Stewart uh, weren't selected. Of the probables, Andy Gray and Kenny Burns didn't go. Of the possibles, Frank McGarvey, Tommy Burns, Roy Aitken and Ali Dawson didn't go. Apparently, Ray Stewart and Tommy Burns were infamously told in the dressing room at Hamden after the England game uh, that they weren't going. The interesting thing here is that Ray Stewart had apparently booked a holiday in Spain for his wife during the World Cup. Apparently, his wife went on the holiday uh, while Ray Stewart stayed at home, claimed he was going to do some decorating. Tommy Burns was absolutely raging at being told by uh, Jockstein in the the dressing room, casually told by Jockstein in the dressing room at Hamden that he wouldn't be going. Uh, to the world, to the World Cup finals. So, uh, looking at the English squad, English definites, only Alvin Martin didn't go. Uh, of the probables, only Tony Morley didn't go. And of the possibles, Paul Goddard, Cyril Regis, Alan Devonshire, and Derek Statham didn't go. And all those uh, that didn't go had been selected in the initial squad of forty. Of the, the Northern Irish definites, Pat Rice didn't go. Interesting thing uh, here was, although shoot, I've got Pat Rice as one of the definites. Pat Rice's last cap for Northern Ireland had been in October 1979, 
And uh, Terry Cochran uh, didn't go. He, he got a hamstring injury during the warm-up match. Of the probables, uh, Jerry McElhinney wouldn't go and he wouldn't win his first cap until 1983. And uh, Derek Spence wouldn't go. And Derek Spence, and this is, a, again, a kind of... Um, uh, very much of its of its time, but uh, Derek Spence quit uh, the national team after he found out that he wasn't going to Spain via teletext. And uh, of the possibles, Campbell of Bradford did make it, but none of the other players that uh, shooted selected uh, as um, possibles: uh, Blackledge of Glentoran, Mullen of Glentoran, Anderson of Linfield, Stewart of QPR. Cleary of Glentoran, Dowd of Wigan, and Curran of Sheffield Wednesday, and none of the rest of them made it. I'm guessing the Cleary is at Tulsa and Dinson, that's in the States, yeah. those ones. I'm, I'm wondering if they've ever had, I'm sure they must have had players going to the World Cups from their, from their side. Page 16, we've got a, a You Are The Ref, and we've got, beside that, we've got Euro Kings walkout shock. So this is at Dundee United. Richard Goff, and uh, Derek Stark recently walked out on, Dun on Dundee United. Uh, at the start of 1982, there was not much doubt that the most disillusioned and bitterly disappointed manager in British soccer was the highly successful Jim McLean of Dundee United. Out of the blue, he had been dealt a double blow by the totally unexpected walkouts of two of his most promising young players, Derek Stark and Richard Goff. Part-timer Stark, 23, who played in the League Cup final against Rangers at Hamden, took his leave and said he was giving up professional football entirely to join the police force. Goff, just 19 years of age, had broken through into the first team this season, packed his bags and flew back to his native South Africa, declaring that he was homesick and would not be returning to Scotland. Of course, they both they both come back. So Stark was quitting to join the police because he was part-time, but he was persuaded to stay when he was made a full-timer. Richard Goff didn't actually stay long in South Africa, but he came back and he actually played 45 games for Dundee United throughout the 1981-82 season. Uh, Derek Stark retired through injury in 1985 and played his last game in the spring of 84. And uh, Richard Goff, of course, uh, went on to win the league title with Dundee United and then moved to Spurs and uh, become a big part of the, the Rangers nine-in-a-row team as well as a, a regular Scottish international. Yeah, I don't imagine you'll remember uh, Richard Goff at Dundee United, uh, Daniel. <laughs> no, no, good picture though weird perspective where his head looks absolutely massive and tiny body so I think he built up after Tannadice. Derek Stark here said uh, as a married man with responsibilities I plumped for security with the police when he was talking about you know his decision to to, to leave the United and I, I don't know what a policeman's salary is these days but um, well, certainly at that level he was playing football as well making a living from that but I find it. I find it a bit not not strange or unexpected, but you know, if if somebody has the ability to play football to a professional level, then I'm not saying do it to the cost of everything else. But you know, I think it's probably going to be one of those ones. If they don't do, uh, then they probably look back on it years to come. So yeah, I'm, I'm I'm happy for him that he came back. And towards the end of it, by this point, obviously Richard Goff. You know, we know that he did come back, but I think at the end of this, they're still hoping that Richard Goff's going to come back. And I'm I'm guessing that they probably hope Richard Goff would come back more than Derek Stark at this point. 
You Are The Ref, compiled by Keith Hackett. I'm just going to look at that first. The first one is, before the start of the game, the home club officials inform you they have installed a new clock which will act as timekeeper. Do you A, give your approval, or B, do you not accept? <laughs> and uh, there's a great picture there of a, a club official with a checked, uh, checked jacket on, uh, with his hand on hip, pointing up to the clock and telling the ref that that'll be acting as timekeeper. Of course, the referee is the sole timekeeper of the game. So Nice pair of Puma boots on the referee there as well. Yeah. Going over the page, we've got Brian Robson's column. Brian Robson writes for you. And uh, we've said in this uh, podcast a few times, uh, Daniel, this again was an interesting era when you got the players uh, writing columns. And again, like we've spoken about, sometimes being quite honest about career or what went on in games. And a lot of times this was the only place where you would really read what players were saying and they would kind of give you the inside uh, the inside knowledge of what was happening or what, how they were training or playing games kind of thing. The mechanics are interesting, aren't they? I can't imagine Robbo sitting down on his typewriter. So I guess they used to phone phone it in and then it was put into shape by the journalists. We're only guessing on that, but I think Stuart Weir gave, gave us our best insight into that who you know Stuart Stuart's as well, he basically said that the journalists would build up a, a rapport with the players and, and a relationship, and then they would phone them, talk through this, and they would maybe have points to to put to them to try and get their opinions and things. But then the interesting thing that I loved that he says was quite often they would say, "You have to phone me at such and such a time because that's when I have to take kids to school." And if you phone me then, then I don't have to do that. And I just saw that, and that's brilliant. You know, to be able to use it in that way is incredible. But yeah, just as Tom says, I just the honesty of it. Just you know, if a player, if a player had opinions like this now, it would be on some some one of the big TV outlets, or it would be you know through Twitter or something, and they would get instant response. And let's face it, most of it would probably be abusive, but. They wouldn't get that here, so probably they felt safer doing that. But maybe it's not that they felt safer, it's maybe that it just wasn't really a thing then for them to consider. Yeah, they probably got, you know, the, the, the way I look at it is back then, if you got abuse off people, apart from in the public, people had to make the effort to write a letter, to, to, to find out the address, to send it, to, to buy a stamp, to put a stamp on it, to walk to the post box, to post it. Most of the people who abuse people online wouldn't ha- they, they would lose interest through a fraction of that. So there's maybe maybe a wee thing uh, here that you can give us a bit more insight into, uh, Daniel. So Brian Robson there says, when I'm 32 or 33, I'll probably be able to put a few years in my career by playing in the centre of defence. The further forward you play, the more pace you need, and playing at the back is mm. easier in this respect. So Robbo obviously went on to become player manager yeah. at Middlesbrough. I played midfield at first in the traditional Brian Robson role, you know, still brilliant, a division down, not as fit, obviously, but still a wonderful player, the promotion year when he took us up as player manager, played a bit less the following season in the Premier League, but I do remember on that point, his last game, I was there at Highbury when he played sweeper, and we um, lost heavily, as we always did at Highbury, and he was brilliant, actually, even though, you know, they conceded three or four, three, you know, I think it was. Uh, I remember him. It was the first time I'd got to see the classic Brian Robson header 
diving headers, sorry, in a Middlesbrough shirt because he seemed to be doing diving headers to get the ball out of the box all afternoon. So yeah, he did sort of do that, but in the end, the, the, the knees went a bit and he had to concentrate on, on the managerial job. Were you excited about him coming as player manager? I'm thinking more specifically as a, as a player. Oh, absolutely. Uh, by then, it was 1994, so the end of his Man United career, it was clear he was very much admired, loved and one of the greats, but it had started to quieten down, so I wasn't as in awe of him as, as I would have been if I was a couple of years older. But it, the, the very name was enough. You just knew immediately that this was someone. And, and what was interesting, people talk about us being able to sign Juninho, Fabrizio Ravanelli, etc. because of the money, which was obviously vital but all of them said I wanted to play for Brian Robson so when you realise that little Janino in Sao Paulo idolised Brian Robson then it subsequently became quite clear to me what a name he was it took a while actually for me to really know but it was it was when players like that were saying I just wanted to meet Brian Robson you're like wow that's pretty impressive because I think he kind of took over from Kevin Keegan as the kind of England pin-up boy the kind of star player yeah, yeah. It's a lovely player, lovely player. Um, uh, even, yeah, his, his goal, is possibly his only goal for Borough, 30 yards against Port Vale late in the promotion season. A beauty on, on TV. Um, but you could still, the, ele- the elegance and the drive. I always wondered what it was like for players like Jamie Pollock and Robbie Musto, who'd sort of had interesting young careers in Pollock's case, uh, but in the second tier to then suddenly be playing with a man who at one time was possibly the best centre midfielder in the world. It must have been quite something to have him barking at you. I think this is a good time now where we're talking about Middlesbrough to jump into the centre t- yeah, piece yeah. of the magazine. So we've got the centre spread as a Middlesbrough team group. I think it's a tremendous yeah. uh, team group. Everything you would want there, a terrific strip. Lovely, lovely layout there with the, the chairs in front of the terrace. <laughs> Do you want to talk us through the, the team there? Well, uh, of great in, of great interest to you up here is, of course, the manager, Bobby Murdoch. Oh, yeah. and, and, <laughs> with no T-shirt on. <laughs> how great does Bobby Murdoch look? He just looks wonderful. He just looks like he's had a brilliant time in Benidorm, doesn't he? And... <laughs> And the T-shirt isn't quite fitting underneath the tracksuit top, so he's just disregarded the T-shirt altogether. He looks good. Bobby Murdoch, of course, came to Borough late in his career, brought by the late, great Jack Charlton. And people said Murdoch's had the, you know, the best, his best days are over. Far from it. It was the absolute centrepiece for Charlton, alongside young Graham Soonis, or Saunas, as he was called then. Um, and so Murdoch, you know, people in Middlesbrough that were around watching that team have great affinity with, with Bobby Murdoch. The managerial side didn't go so well. This is the very beginning of the darkest days. It's actually the beginning of the end, because Middlesbrough Football Club, as we knew it, ceased to exist in 1986. So this season, great kit, Datsun, Cleveland, Controversial use of white socks and red shorts, um, which we've always swithered with over the years. This team ended up being relegated. It talks about them being in a relegation battle. Great names. Billy Wolf, one of the great footballers' names. Hein Otto and, of course, the great Jim Platt, who you'll always see at home games still now. And Irving Natras. I always used to love that name as a kid. You just knew the names. You didn't know much about the team. But in, an interesting, very interesting point in Middlesbrough's history uh, downward from here, year on year, 
82-83, 16th in the second tier, 17th the year after under Malcolm Allison. Jack Charlton came back for a little while, kept them up in 84-85, and then finally under Willie Madron relegated to the third tier for the only time in our history. Well, could be the second time just a few hours from now, but let's not talk about that. Uh, and that next year, 86, into receivership, the ground you see there, Ayrson Park, the gates locked, the club ceased to exist effectively, played when it was brought back, played its early games at Hartlepool, uh, Victoria Park, the man behind bringing Middlesbrough back, Steve Gibson, still the owner now. So, uh, you know, that's a very, very important team photo because it was the last of the great first division sides after the glory days of Jack Charlton. I recognise a couple of the guys there really from playing by the clubs. Mm. David Armstrong, he went on to play at Southampton alongside uh, Kevin Keegan. Of course, his, uh, his autobiography was called The Bald Fact, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got David Hodgson there in the front row uh, with some great peroxide here. So eighties, uh, yeah. He's, the eighties came to Middlesbrough quite late, but he's he's <laughs> he's right in the thick of the eighties look there, isn't he? And he obviously went on to play for uh, went on to play for uh, yeah. Liverpool. Uh, yeah, absolutely great shot there. Great Adidas, uh, big Adidas crest, tangle ball yeah. down, down at the front. The Zephyr one, so it's unusual because the Zephyr yeah. one's there yeah. as well, and that. I see that from 1976, so that it's not a new ball, but it looks it, in good this condition. This team photo displeases me from the point of view that that ball should should be next to Bobby Murdoch's left foot, or the or the tango should be next to uh, um, Terry Cochran's feet. It's not symmetrical, and I don't like that in a team photo. Thankfully, there are three outfield players either side of the goalkeepers, that the goalkeepers are not wearing matching tops, which also annoys me. <laughs> I mean, also the the front rows on basically living rooms, you know, dining seats or something. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's not like a bench. Um, no. <laughs> one of the things I noticed as well, if you if you look, I think pretty much everybody on the front row, and almost everybody in the second row, you can't really tell at the back row, but they've all got um, chains on, neck chains. Every single one of them. Um, so a very popular thing at the time. There's a lot of uh, man-spreading going on, especially at both ends at the front. Interestingly as well, you've got short sleeves and long sleeves yeah. in the same team photo. Yeah. It's not that, you know, common to see that. They're usually all the same size. You could tell we're on a downward spiral with things like that, I think it's fair <laughs> to say. But see, the names, um, the Irving Natras that you mentioned, I'm yeah, glad you mentioned yeah. him because, yeah, that that's always been a name when I've seen them in cards and I think it was Newcastle United who was up maybe before or after I think it was before this but yeah Irving Natras was just a, a really an unusual name yeah completely but yeah great I, I love I love I, I, I get I get your um, your idea of symmetry and things like that but sometimes I think the fact that you know to the right hand side it sort of goes downwards I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that at times oh, could just be the cameraman I'm blaming him <laughs> So it mentions there in the club's uh, spotlight, it didn't need a crystal ball to foresee the difficulties it would have after a summer of turmoil at Ayrson Park. Uh, they lost an international class midfield in Craig Johnson, Mark Proctor and David Armstrong, along with top scorer Bosco Jankovic. Uh, so yeah, Craig Johnson obviously was, was a guy who went on uh, to great success with Liverpool, I think Mark yeah, Proctor yeah. with Nottingham Forest. Eventually came back um, in the early 90s proc and, and, and of course was involved with Livingston and Hibbs I think wasn't he and the coaching and it mentions their Scottish midfielder Bobby Thompson did you sign him from Hibbs? 
That rings a bell, yeah. My, my knowledge is sketchy on this era. This era, to me, because my first game was 88, this era for me is is just defined as the beginning of the end. What's notable is the wonderful badge, actually. Our subsequent badges have not had any hint of the industrial nature of the area. And, and you know, we talk Middlesbrough is associated with steel and bridge building, rightly. So, but, but shipbuilding's missed a bit. So to have ships on there, I always liked, and we've not had that since. In fact, the badge is wrong, though, because it's not the one on the shirt. So. You mentioned there, the Daniel, just uh, Jack Charlton, who's obviously passed passed away. Graham Soonis, he was on uh, recently talking about Jack Charlton, but he credits him, Jack Charlton, for turning Soonis's career yeah. around and basically getting maybe Bucky's yeah. ideas up at, Middle, at Middlesbrough. Yeah, he's, but it's sort of, the, the, the Charlton Borough era has been a bit lost in the narrative since he sadly died, uh, but just huge for, for Borough, loved, considered by many to be our greatest ever manager really, and uh, there's so much good material coming out about Big Jack, um, but I would urge you to find a particular BBC clip on the BBC T's BBC Sound site, which is just a half hour where they followed him around. And what's impressive about him isn't just the on the field stuff, it's that he made it his mission to get thousands more on the gate. So he used to go out to work in men's clubs to pigeon fanciers clubs. He was out nearly every night doing talks, making everyone laugh, giving free tickets away, getting the community on board again. People would talk about visionaries for things like that now. Just wonderful. We 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 love the man. That's amazing. I think Jack Charlton was a guy who was just loved everywhere he went. Yes, yeah. It's being shown now, isn't it? It's sad it takes death sometimes, isn't it, for us to talk like this? There's a great uh, documentary you can find on YouTube. is Jack Charlton at Irish Years, which covers his, his time at Ireland, which is great. It's Colin, Colin Meany, the actor, that, uh, that doesn't speaks to a lot of the guys uh, from that, that Irish team, as well as some of the backroom staff. And, Guys like Adler Hanlon as, as as well, you know, just talk about how how he came in and just got the team believing. Next page is a shake-up at City, and it's uh, John Bond writes exclusively for shoot. Again, it's something that really wouldn't happen now. A manager of a team, not a former manager, writing a regular column. I threatened a shake-up at Manchester City after a 3-1 FA Cup exit at the hands of Coventry City. Let me tell you that it started, and I will not leave a stone unturned until I've got the club back on the rails. Asa Hartford let the team down when he was sent off against Coventry. When Asa is playing properly, he's a tremendous asset to Manchester City. He's one of the best players in the country. So it's even worse for a manager when he's let down by such a talented performer. Asa is being fined for his conduct on that day. I will not tolerate retaliation or dissent. They want a model professionally follow as you study Joe Corrigan's example. I just want to read you a wee something from, this is from April of 1982, after Man City had lost to West Ham, and uh, John Bond again launched a, an attack on him. If Asa thinks he's entitled to play in Spain on the strength of the way he's been performing over the last couple of months, he's in trouble. I don't know how up-to-date Jock Steen is in the situation, but I would respectfully suggest that he gets here quickly and has a good look at what Hartford is doing, or rather not doing for City. Frankly, I don't see how Jock Steen can pick him. I'm getting fed up with watching a player of his ability contributing next to nothing. He's going to have to prove me that he isn't over the hill. If he can't, then he better start looking for another job pretty soon. So I don't know if that's just John Bond's way of trying to give Asa Hartford a kick up the arse, but uh, he certainly had the knives out for him around about that time in his career. I find I find it interesting um, his, his comments about him being sent off. He says, you don't go around kicking people because you're frustrated and you aren't doing your stuff. There's no way I'll tolerate that. 
rarely do referee are referees wrong on such important decisions. I don't know of many cases when a player has been sent off unjustly. Nine out of ten times they deserve to go. The times have changed on that, haven't they? I mean that that's very unusual in itself that he's saying it like that. And as you say, maybe he's he's just got something in for Asa Hartford at the yeah, time. Possibly. Uh, Jerry Gow has a great picture of him there. And one one of those guys he looked old before his time because he was like thirty and he had grey hair and a moustache. Jerry Gow was freed by me to join Rotherham because it was his best interest to go to Milner. He's a lovely, infectious character who did a marvellous job for us. He's carried an injury for a long time and Rotherham were well aware of that when he joined them. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he talks about Martin O'Neill uh, returns to Norwich. I wish him well at his new club. I sometimes wish managers could tell supporters the precise reasons for players' departures. Unfortunately, it's not always in the best interest of the game if they know. The whole the whole article is just honest. It's open. It, you know, there's there's no punches being pulled. There's you know he's, he's not holding back. Absolutely great stuff. I love it. Moving over here to goal lines, which is the letters page. A couple of wee things to look at there. Never say die. As a Swansea City supporter, I am appalled at the way everyone is criticising Die Davis, calling him Die the Drop and Diabolical. I will admit he has made a few mistakes, but he has also saved our heads in many games. Should not the defenders and the strikers share the blame? Do you think that that was just because his his name was just a right for puns? Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think diabolical is a good one, though. That is a good one. Mm. So again, we've talked about um, Gordon Mayer. It's like his nickname is Nightmare, and you know I think nicknames do get borne out a lot because of the name. So diabolical and nightmare, and yeah, absolutely. Next one is uh, think British. While flicking through my collection of focuses, I was infuriated by the number of players who in their answers seemed to have such a liking for the USA. It's almost like they were born there. Coupled to that, their favourite actor is Clint Eastwood. Their favourite singers are Barbara Streisand and Stevie Wonder. The person they would all like to meet is, of course, Muhammad Ali. And the food and drink that they are most partial to is steak and lager. Genuinely American foods. My answer to it all is, please think British. So, so when I first read this, I thought, this sounds like somebody who's probably very pro-Brexit and all that sort of stuff. And I went looking for him on Twitter. And if you actually look down his timeline, it's the complete opposite. So I think he's obviously probably a young lad at this point, And I think his um, attitude to this has sort of changed over time. So hopefully that, that that's the same, Henrik. And if it is, well done for changing your attitude, Henrik, because that's Right. Daniel, I should maybe just say that you host a number of podcasts yourself, as well as Nutmeg you're doing When Saturday Comes. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's a, I've loved When Saturday Comes. All my, well, God, since I was maybe 12 or 13, uh, the magazine has just been a massive part of my life and wanting to be a writer. So it was a, a real, I was really, really, was, you know, it's an honour when they asked, could you try and help us put this together? It came from the fact that the magazine needed and needs to raise funds so it was to, to be able to do something to offer as a patreon and so to play a part in a tiny part in keeping the magazine going is also tremendously important to me but above all that it's just absolutely brilliant fun i get to well until coronavirus meet up with the editor andy and the great writer harry pearson at harry's to record since then we've been recording online hopefully we'll get to meet again and they're tremendously entertaining funny uh, knowledgeable people so it's it's a real real pleasure to do i've learned a lot about football from it as well which which is a 
Do you have any guests that you've enjoyed? You've enjoyed speaking with personally, just for myself. I really enjoyed your podcast uh, with Pat and Evan. Yeah, yeah, with the, with the nutmeg ones. When when Saturday comes, although we haven't done many interviews, a guest that I enjoyed was Josh Widdicombe. I interviewed him about his love of Plymouth Argyle, and that was a really nice interview. Similar ages, so we had similar reference points and things. But of nutmeg, yeah, I've, I've interviewed Pat twice. Just. I think you said in your email to me you could listen to him all day and it's like that when when you're with him you don't get round to what I wanted to talk about music and politics a lot and hardly got round to it so brilliant but but my favorite is probably Andy Ritchie actually I'd read so much of Andy Ritchie and seen so many highlights on YouTube of his great Morton days and he was such a gentleman such a lovely open honest man you, we all know he's had his troubles but he just gave me hours of, of his time and he's got his son to come and pick me up so it's those things you don't get to hear really that mean a lot to you as well I just love the man what what a gent what stories and I couldn't couldn't believe his great honesty with me it's uh, yeah what, what, what he was a tremendous player Andy Ritchie he did play for it because Andy Andy Smith here with me uh, and I are both Clay Bank fans and Andy Ritchie did play briefly for Clybank. I think he only managed to play, I think, one, maybe two games. He, he signed on a short-term contract in like, January, and I think most of the games were postponed. He's the one guy from Clybank's senior era that I would have loved to have actually properly played for Clybank for a, for a couple of years. It's shocking that Andy Ritchie didn't actually manage to get a play, end up playing a top-class club for a, mm. you know extended spell, because he, he, yeah. he was an absolutely fantastic player. It's, it's awful what happened to him in terms of it was restraint of trade. They just wouldn't sell him. And um, it's awful. It could have, you know, obviously started at Celtic, but it could have gone, he had bids from England. There was Liverpool were interested for God's sake. It's, it's sad. It's sad that, that footballers could be still treated as cattle uh, uh, as late as the 70s, really. Right, so we, we move on then to uh, Spain uh, 82 World Cup captains. This was a good few months before Spain 82, but it's a really heavy on the, the build-up to the, to the World Cup. World Cup captains number seven, Zenek Nehoda of uh, Czechoslovakia. Also, there's a wee bit there on the manager, Josef Vengelos. And it looks at how Czechoslovakia qualified for the World Cup and and the World Cup record. And this is the kind of thing that shoot did that you would need nowadays. You could obviously you could find Czechoslovakia's World Cup record anywhere online. But it's the kind of thing that these days that you you wouldn't be able to find as easily as as, as readily as as all that. I think is the kind of thing that's why you would maybe compile your shoots is to hang on to all those wee kind of statistics that you might want to look back on. I can't even think any, like you'd have the Rothmans books and things like that, that you could get stats and the, the Clydesdale Bank ones for the for the Scottish ones. But I can't think of anything that, I mean, there was a World Soccer magazine, um, which was, I mean, I think that, I don't know if that's still gone, but that's went through all the, all the different decades. But um, I can't think of any sort of almanacs or any sort of reference books that you would get this information in. We get this from the cards where you look at the stats and, you know, as a wee boy, those are the stats you've memorised and you've grown up thinking those are the stats and you find out those aren't the stats. It's been lied to your entire life. You're not bitter about it at all. Zenik Nehoda got 91 caps and scored 31 goals for Czechoslovakia and he's currently a football agent. The wee bit there, the manager, Josef Venglos, course we know I guess from his time at Celtic and Aston Villa. It doesn't look any really any different nope. from how okay so we move on to the, the lineups results and scorers. 
Yeah, well, Scott, Scottish um, is in their civil service strollers. Try saying that is with a Sean Connery accent. Civil service strollers three, Cowden Beef three, bit of a, and take them to a to a replay. Does it give the second one? Doesn't have the second one there. So I mean, that's a bit of a scalp for civil service strollers. Stainish Muir two, Berwick five. And some other Scottish Cup games. No, not, notably, only eleven thousand at Celtic as well, mm. and yet, and yet twelve and a half at Motherwell. Interesting. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing the majority of those maybe Aberdeen supporters at the time. That would have been. Is that a midweek game or is that a Saturday game? This one. That's a Saturday, I think. So I think that's the game at Motherwell nil Aberdeen one, where John Hewitt scored after nine seconds. <laughs> I think. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I think Aberdeen fans still going about that being the. The fastest goal or fastest cup goal or something. Clybank 2, Dunfermline 1. Always worth mentioning those with a massive 911 at Cook Newcombe. Celtic 4, Queen of the South now. What was the Middlesbrough score? Were we out of the cup by now? Because <laughs> it's the cup. It's, it's third round. Yeah, we were out. We must have gone out of the third round stage I'm saying I'm thinking it was a very cold winter remember I know that because my mum was stuck in the hospital with me for a, a couple of days um, and so I think the FA Cup was probably played a bit later as well but yeah we were out already <laughs> moving on then to the next page we've got three with Tiger this week eight soccer cars featuring World Cup soccer stars do you remember these Andy these ones um not really I, I may well have some of them in the collection um and possibly in sheets I don't know if they maybe got these in sheets and you would sort of rip them apart with perforations. Well, I may well have them, but they, they don't strike me very instantly as being familiar. All the cards, we've got fantastic offers for collectors of international pennant. Daniel, was pennants the kind of thing that you would have had? Just looking at some of my pennants earlier, I'll show you. <laughs> this is a lovely one from, from that era. Well, that's a bit earlier. That's Jack Charlton era one with that great badge so yes I, I love pennants I have many and it was a club a club shop mainstay still in the, the late 80s definitely and I've collected quite a few since they're a lovely thing aren't they I love it when you go to a social club yeah, it's just what I was gonna say. yeah and they're, they're hung up everywhere that's you'll see that across across Britain and it's a lovely thing seeing you know that uh that uh, Lynn Lithgow once played Millwall or something, for example. That's how you learn it. And you ask, great, picture the captains giving each other a pennant and thinking, what, what do I do with this? Do we have any theories why all first division English teams and then brackets excluding Everton? <laughs> that was interesting. So I wonder yeah. why that is. Yeah. License, like, God must have tough licensing <laughs> laws, issues and policies. Nah, don't be silly. <laughs> I mean, is it Spanish clubs, international clubs? Yeah. I'm interested as well in that. I didn't know that the PGL, which was parents get lost, did football holidays. I remember I never went on one of those holidays, but they were a feature of certainly richer kids used to go off on a PGL holiday. And I I never knew they did football ones. I wonder who the equivalent stars of the 90s would have been. I'm I'm going to maybe put my foot in here, but is that what it meant? PGL? Certainly by by my era, that was certainly the slogan on magazines. So perhaps it's you know stood for the founders of the of the holidays, but the adverts certainly said parents get lost on them and that's what people I've never heard that before and I like that. <laughs> so all right, let's try and uh, rattle through a wee bit of this then to let Daniel get off and watch Middlesbrough. <sighs> the butterflies have started. Just, uh, on that, what about Neil Warnock? He's one of those managers, classic figure, there are lots of players like this that you hate when you play against and then you instantly love them when they become yours and I can't get enough of him at the minute 
the thing is we're a point short we should have had a point at home we haven't won at home since boxing day um <laughs> which is appalling we actually deserve really if we go down it's our fault we've been awful but we've a lot of ways out of going it'll take a, a cataclysmic set of results tonight and Wigan winning their appeal and Sheffield Wednesday having no points deducted it'll be a truly disastrous relegation but as a fan that doesn't stop you thinking it'll happen I'm convinced it's going to happen it may not quite get the a great reaction from a lot of people in the Scottish football but at least you've got the chance to stay up haven't you you were given the chance given the chance we were fourth bottom when it all got cancelled so I was quite happy with it just finishing to be honest with you but but, um, yeah it hasn't been the case we must get a point or hope something happens yeah no good luck in that so there's a couple of interesting things in uh, Worldwide compiled by Chris Davis going to look at here the national team of Afghanistan is playing in the West German third division the players left the country in small groups after the Soviet invasion and have settled down in the same area in Germany now 17 of them have formed a new club in the town of Paderborn I tried to find out a wee bit more about that but I couldn't really find any conclusive evidence of the club that they'd set up if it still existed or anything else very interesting. Great. That feels like a film, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, do, it really does. Yeah, you really feel that there's more of a story in there to be told. Yeah. Isn't that's what happened after Escape to Victory, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. That's the story after. Yeah, if, if anybody knows, it would be interesting to find out a wee bit find out a wee bit more about that. Other bit below that is uh, World Cup star Borg. So it's Spain's World Cup committee has confirmed that negotiations are underway and a bid to mount non-footballing spectaculars during June and July to liven up the country during the month-long tournament. If the negotiations are successful, there'll be performances by Julio Iglesias, the Rolling Stones and the Bolshoi Ballet, a Karpov-Fisher chess match, a Borg McEnroe tennis match, a Formula One race, a spectacular bullfight, a big horse race and an important athletics meeting. Now, I don't recall any of that happening during the Spain 82 World Cup, but it's interesting to Karpov-Fisher chess match and a Borg McEnroe tennis match. That's really interesting that they were trying to do that. A wee bit there about Roger Mueller, obviously the star of the 1990 World Cup, Cameroon's ace striker Roger Mueller, has been suspended by his club after spending five extra days back home in Yaoundé, celebrating his country's qualification for the World Cup finals. He was always a maverick, it would appear. As a punishment, they made him train with the youth side. Mia has a habit of disappearing without permission. Yeah, great stuff. And all these worldwide things Diego Maradona has mentioned. Maradona's old club, Argentinos Juniors, is in a bad way financially. His Boca Juniors whisked away Maradona on loan and haven't paid for him! Exclamation mark. Argentinos are having to wait anxiously for a court decision on Maradona's future. The odds are that he'll return to Argentinos and immediately be transferred to Barcelona before they could lay their hands on any cash. And in the meantime, the players are three months behind on their wages. There's also a, a little one there. The treasurer of Yugoslav leaders, Red Star Belgrade, has been arrested, accused of misappropriating part of the gate receipts from two games just before Christmas. Estimated about £9,000 involved. Again, £9,000 a lot of money. So I dread to think what the, the gate's receipts were. That they, they would take you know that sort of money and not think it wouldn't get noticed. It strikes me, by the time I was a shoot regular in the early to mid-90s, it wasn't as internationalist as as these ones. I don't remember that much international coverage. It's, it's interesting. From our experience anyway, it starts getting a bit less focused on news and information and, and it's more sort of, it's, it's more sort of focused towards younger readers. 
Well, there were a lot more posters, I tell you that, and I think we're going to come to an every one, aren't we? But there's so few posters compared to, it seems to be every other page by the 90s. We'll race on briefly to that Airdrie poster then. Great kits. One of the great kits. Saw a Sabutio Airdrie team on Twitter the other day and I thought, that is the best Sabutio team I've seen, I think. I know they won't be popular with you. No, they're absolutely not popular (laughs) with with, with us at all. (laughs) We have to be professional about this and treat them. Yes, yes, I know. I, I do grudgingly admit it's a smart kit and, and, and they have maintained that style of kit absolutely through, throughout the various incarnations of the club. But yeah, they're, 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 they're not fondly thought of in, in Clive no. Bank, that's, that's for sure. I, underst- I understand that. I understand. But, uh, that. Yeah, there's a few players there we can, we can have a wee look at. Front row, we've got um, Pat McCluskey, who was, with, who was with Celtic in the early 70s. Beside him, we've got Sandy Clark, who's sporting a beard and a gold chain. Uh, obviously, we're only West Ham and, and Rangers, and has become a pundit in the front row as well. We get Jim Roger, who went on to become a bit of a Clyde Bank legend. Do you spot anybody there, Andy? Wally Maguire in the front row as well. He was there. He was um, in the news a few years ago about playing keepy up with something. I can't remember what it was. It was like a real. It might have been like a. I don't know if it was something stupid like a, a chocolate egg or something like that. He was in the news about you know keeping up for so long. But yeah, I'm, I'm friends with Willie on, on Twitter as well, so I'll give him a mention. Middle row, John Martin there, right in the middle. Absolutely outrageous perm. I think, when is this when? Possibly, to, um, and I'm going to be aging this, and I don't know if you're aware of the the live YouTube event of A Shot of Glory. That's going to be Ali McCoist and, what's his name? The American actor that's in it. Robert Duvall. Duvall are going to be doing a live event of the showing of that show. I believe it may be on Thursday the twenty third, possibly. I hope I've not missed that. But but John Martin's in in that as well. Um, and I don't know in the in the movie he's got a right a, a stutter. And I don't know if that is just part of his persona and that, or if he actually has that in real life. I have to admit. I mean, just looking at those socks as well. I mean, those socks could well be part of a Scotland national team kit as well. Bobby Watson, the manager, obviously. Ex-Motherwell, ex-Rangers, amongst um, some others. I've never seen a manager sucked to the side like that. I don't know if that's a statement on his part. Um, other players, George Anderson, the ex-Morton, I think, wasn't he? John Flood, they, you know, quite small in the end there. They could have maybe got somebody to balance that off. I think maybe if they got Tom McCafferty in the middle row and maybe put him on the end at the top, that would have balanced off flood for all these people who need the their balance in these things. It's it's it is a great kit. It's it's very it's very obviously airdry. I mean I think it's um it's it's pretty much well known. Certainly in, in the UK is that is the airdry kit. So if we jump along to page number thirty five, it's this week's Tartan Talk column and it's by uh, Ali Dawson of Rangers. And again World Cup themed Scotland's Irish star set for Spain. Do you believe that the Rangers player with probably the best chance of playing in the World Cup finals in Spain this summer has hardly kicked a ball in our first team this season? Sounds a bit Irish, doesn't it? In fact, it is a bit Irish. The player I'm talking about is the versatile Northern Ireland international, John McClellan. And that's uh, that's right, there was no Rangers players in the Scotland squad uh, for 1982, and it was obviously before the era of uh, Rangers players were throughout the English World Cup squad. So yeah, so John McClellan did go to Spain in the Northern Ireland squad. So there's a picture of him there sporting a beard. I think that's just when he'd signed for Rangers because I think the first thing he had to do was whip off the facial hair. In that era, there was no facial hair allowed at Ibrox. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. 
Standards, eh? Standards. <laughs> Ali Dawson at the point here is hoping that he might be in the squad as well. I've got my fingers crossed and I can only do my best for Rangers and hope Mr Steen has not forgotten me. When I think about it, Scotland could probably go to Spain with 22 first-class strikers alone. We've got a Nobby cartoon there, uh, Daniel, football cartoons. Do you have any, any thoughts on... Yeah, the sort of page fillers, weren't they? I don't remember loving them. I remember shoot had a spoof Roy of the Rovers called Ray of the Rangers in my time. It was vaguely amusing. Football's not funny, is it? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I say about these things. <laughs> No to, no to the cartoon. That's what you buy Roy the Rovers for. Exactly right. And and proper artistry, yeah. If we're just going out to the last page of the magazine, and the last page of the magazine is a super focus on John Wark of uh, Ipswich Town. Great photograph of uh, John Wark there playing with the socks to the ankles, no shin guards on. Socks rolled right down to the ankles and that great Ipswich strip there of the um, pinstripes. I think it's going to be UEFA Cup winners writing underneath underneath the badge. We must salute his favourite food and drink, a Sunday roast and a can of tartan. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not easy to sauce in Suffolk either, a tartan I mean. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, nickname Warky. I would have thought maybe the walrus. I don't know if it's... And it called them the walrus, but I mean, just that, that kit is, I mean, the badge is magnificent on it, sort of a shield type thing. But I sort of remember that style of kit with Ipswich and Nottingham Forest from those periods. And I think Nottingham Forest sort of brought it back a couple of seasons ago, very similar in style, and it looked magnificent. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that, big fan of that. He's got a cheek naming Escape to Victory as the best film he's seen, hasn't yeah. he? Not mentioning why. Favourite TV show, The Professionals. I mean, this, this is a, a real man, this man here. He names his best ever all-time <laughs> 11. Jennings, Killis, Alberto, Beckenbauer, Beatty, Cooper, Bremner, Netzer, Maradona, Best, Pelly and Law. I presume Beatty's his teammate at Ipswich. Which person would you most like to meet? I've already met him, Pelly. Again, Escape to Victory from there, isn't it? Personal ambition to play for Scotland in the World Cup finals in Spain, which obviously he did and scored twice against New Zealand. And as we know from Simon Weir, who also comes on the show every now and then, he actually furnished John's sister. So John John had um, lost his copy of the Escape to Victory strip from the movie or the tracksuit or something from the movie. Simon managed to get a hold of a new one for, for his sister who presented it to him. And we've got some photographs of John wearing it. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. All right, so that's us got through the magazine. So, uh, Daniel, if you want to sit awkwardly while Andy does a bit of wrap-up. <laughs> yeah, so so part, part of the thing we do with the show is we, we do team up with a, a charity partner for each of the seasons we do. And we, we try and get exposure for them, raise funds if we can, things like that. So I'm just going to give you a little shout out here for our current charity partner which is the West Dunbartonshire Community Food Share and that's Dunbartonshire with an N. So this charitable organisation provides various services and support to the local community including the following. School uniform bank, a school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. Now, they provide essential support to the local community and supporting individuals and families. And we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money, and support in the form of volunteers. 
but we will also be raising the awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do, but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware of these vital services. We'll hear a lot more about the Western Bartonshire Community Food Share in our future podcasts. And I keep saying this, but we will get our own Claire Coyle from the group. We'll get her on the show to discuss the work and discuss what they do and how we can support them. So you can follow them on the West Dumbartonshire Community Food Share group on Facebook or on westdumbartonshirecommunityfoodshare.co.uk for the website. It's got to be one of the longest websites I think I've ever seen. But also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts at shoottb underscore podcast and at scotsfootycards for updates and news on our charity partner. So part of the thing we do with the show is each show we, we, we create a website, a web page that, that details, shows all the, the articles that we've, we've spoke about, any links to things that aren't in the article, movie, you know, YouTube clips, things like that. So basically people can listen to the show and follow along in the same way that we've been able to do here. But we also have a, a donate button on, on that. So anybody can donate for every pound that you donate, you get a virtual raffle ticket. And at the end of each season, we will raffle off the original magazines that we've been talking about. Um, we'll be looking to throw in, you know, other goodies. I'll, I'll throw in some other stuff from my collection. If there's anything that you have yourself, Daniel, that you can maybe throw in. Mm, yes. And a couple of signed books. Definitely. Yeah. That'd be absolutely great. So as I say, what happens is for each pound that the, that you donate, it will get you a virtual raffle ticket and then when we draw that the winner will get the goodie bag and the proceeds of that will all go towards the the food share as well the western partnership food share group so on that we'd also like to thank pete wiley of the mighty wah for use of story of the blues which is the music for the show and you can catch up with pete on petewiley.co.uk and check out any details of upcoming gigs and new music whenever that starts happening again hopefully soon and also we'd like to thank our producer, Diane Jarden, for her ongoing work and support of the podcast. And you can check out transmissionroom.co.uk and it's based in Clyde Banks for music recording and rehearsal facilities. And hopefully myself and Tom will get back into the studio some point in the near future as well. In, in terms of what's happening with yourself, Daniel, what, what's going on with you at the moment? Busy with Nutmeg, this is a really busy time because you're getting all the articles in. The deadline was July the 20th, so odds and ends are coming in and we're just going through that process. So that's pretty full time at the moment. And editing part two of a When Saturday Comes podcast, celebrating the magazine, reaching 400 issues. They're my main immediate work tasks, but it's hard to concentrate on anything with relegation hanging over you. So hopefully by half past nine tonight, I'll be a happy man. I may even go and find a socially distant pub and have a party. Good luck with that. I, I genuinely mean that. I hope I hope they stay up. I'd like to thank Tom for being Tom, as always. Thank you, Andy. And for everybody listening out there, uh, thank you for, for listening to the podcast. Please share it with your friends. Give us some feedback on the, the website or on, on Twitter. Until the next time, let's shoot the breeze. <laughs>